So, but this morning, we're doing something a little bit different. We're going to be starting a new series that we call Nuts and Bolts. And this series is all really kind of getting back to what are those foundational principles about Jesus. And this year, if you've been checking us out, if you've been getting um, to know Calvary Church for the last few weeks here, you may have heard, maybe you haven't, but last August, we went through a pretty big transition, a change here in our church family where our lead pastor, Jim Nichols, of 20 almost 20 years, retired. So our church family is in a pretty big season of change. And change, no matter what season you are in, is a difficult thing to navigate. Change is something that some of us enjoy, some of us don't. There are so many changes that life could inevitably bring us that I decided it might be fun to kind of crowdsource some changes from you guys that you've experienced in the last year. So for good or for bad, I asked you over Facebook, what are some changes that you're, in your life that you've experienced? And you guys all had a lot to say. So there'll be a few responses from Facebook up there, but some of us had babies, Others started new jobs, quit jobs. Some of us wanted, uh, went through surgeries. Some of us started new hobbies, new disciplines, and much, much more. There are a lot of changes that happened in this last year. And here's the thing. Some of us love change. We are all about it. Like if there's a new gadget out, like if Apple puts out a new phone or an iWatch or an Apple anything, you are the one standing in line saying, that is for me. You're the person who loves change. When you look at the calendar and you see something that you've never done before that you might be able to get invested in, you're there. Some of us cannot wait for change. We embrace it. There's others of us, I think I'm more in this group, where we hear about change and we just kind of take a step back and we wonder, what'll stick? Is it really going to last? Is this thing that we're doing, is it going to have a staying power? I remember when I was in college, the iPad came out and I was like, oh, a tablet thing? To, okay, that's kind of neat. We'll see if it sticks around. Almost a decade later, I still don't have an iPad and there's the Galaxy tablet and all these other devices. I'm like, we'll see. I don't know if it'll be here. I'm the person that's slow to kind of adapt to that change. I'm not the, the first person to grab advice. But then there's our others of us, and I would say this is the vast majority of humanity, and all of us at some time, and, or all of us at some point fall into this category where we resist it. We're like, heck no, I do not want to change. I don't want to inconvenience myself. I've set up a very nice, stable system of existence, and you are not going to impose on that. We don't like change. But if we're honest, the last 20 years has given us quite a bit of change. Our world looks markedly different than it did 20 years ago. 2001, September 11th, ushered in an area, era of security after we were attacked by the Taliban. Our country has never been the same since. 2007, Apple released the iPhone, which literally put the power and of knowledge in the palm of humanity. We have access to everything. We don't have to think anymore. We don't have to remember. There are some sociologists that are saying, this is going to be scary, that this, what helps us think, makes us the first cyborg humans in existence, where this is an extension of our brain. Talk about change. 2008, a monumental event happened. The United States voted in its first black president, saying that all race is able to lead our country. That's incredible. 2015, all marriage throughout the United States was made legal, no matter the form. And then in 2016, another landmark happened where the first woman ever 
ran for president, saying, not only is all race able to take office and lead our country, but both genders. 2017, we see a national and international refugee crisis in Europe and at the U.S.-Mexico border take the spotlight because we don't know how to deal with people from other countries wanting to find a new home. And in 2020, we see the legalization of marijuana continuing to move forward across the Americas, which for some people is a really great thing because it helps them deal with all the change. These changes have affected our society. It has challenged us, it has shaped us, it has stretched us, it has transformed us and the way we view the world because of it. And I am here to say that the church is not exempt from these changes. Amidst all of this change, there is no shortage of opinions, beliefs, ideas, or truths about spirituality and who or what God is. And this is the premise of our series. In the weeks ahead, we are going to be looking at the nuts and the bolts of what hold our church, our people, our movement together in the midst of a divided world. But for some of us, this might raise a pretty important question. How can you prove that your nuts and bolts, that your truth can bear the weight of change? How can you prove that the nuts and bolts that you hold to are going to stand the test of time? Oops, I can't. I can't, I can't prove that to you. Because nuts and bolts aren't proven until they're used. But I can tell you that astrophysicists who study the stars, the life and death cycle of them like Deborah Harzma, or Francis Collins who led the Human Genome Project mapping the human genome from the, from the cosmos to the very minuscule. We have scientists that look at the science, at the way the earth and the cosmos is made, and they say science supports scriptural facts and truths. I can tell you that events like our creation narrative in the book of Genesis and the cataclysmic flood story of Noah, they're corroborated by ancient Mesopotamian writings as well. We have multiple accounts of these events happening, maybe in different ways, but the nuts and bolts of the event happen outside of Scripture. I can tell you that from the Enlightenment to our modern day, skeptics like Voltaire, Kant, and Dawkins have criticized our religious texts for inconsistencies, but in light of extra-canonical or extra-biblical sources and secular writing, the historical events that Scripture records are coming to be true. I can tell you that like the engineers who used 2.5 million nuts and bolts to hold the Eiffel Tower together, it will take an amount of trust in many small parts to construct our truth. So our task in the weeks ahead, I'm sorry if you're kind of disappointed by this, it is not going to be an argument to say that our truth is undeniable. But rather, we are going to endeavor to understand the truth or the nuts and bolts that we choose to hold the weight of our faith. And like any good building, we need a solid foundation. And our foundation is the Bible. The Bible is constructed of 66 books divided into two halves. The first half we called the Old Testament is a collection of poetry, of law, of history, of allegory, of prophecy. 
and prophetic writings, all written in ancient Hebrew. The second half we call the New Testament is a group of texts numbering 27 that is more history, instructional letters, and letters of love and care to different churches and people around the world. Those letters were written in Aramaic, in Hebrew, and in ancient Greek as the world was starting to modernize in ancient times. And over the years, these books changed. They were adapted, they were copied thousands and thousands and thousands of times by scribes to spread, literally spread the words that were recorded throughout the ancient world. They were translated into Greek all together at one time to form a book called the Septuagint because the modern world used Greek. And then later, all of those books were translated again into Latin because that was the the language of Rome in the modernizing ancient world. That book was called the Vulgate. And then in the the 1450s, something incredible happened. Humanity invented the printing press, which meant all of the books that had been penned by hand and copied by hand, by hand, by hand for for ages could now be stamped, mass-produced, and the Bible was translated into German. And then in the 1530s, the Bible was translated again into English in the Tyndale Bible. In the 1600s, the King James Version, which we famously know and many of us reject because we can't understand that sort of English. And to our present day, the Bible has been translated into 700 languages so that every tribe and tongue could understand the Word of God. And the New Testament alone into an additional 1,500. With several millennium of work, progression, and copying, there are tons of voices who wonder, has the Bible been corrupted since its original text? Can, it, can I trust it? Can it really bear the weight? Has the foundation cracked? I don't have time this morning to go into everything that could be said, but there are a few major things that textual critics and historians use to discern or discover, is it authentically true to what it was? Quantity, variance, and and recency are the tests that um, critics use. And this is important because we don't actually have any original texts of the scriptures. And so immediately people are like, well, then can we even trust it? Hold on, we can. Because the quantity of texts that we do have are a lot. We have a lot of copies of the original copies. And we have tons of them, thousands of them. And it's important because since we don't have the originals, the copies we use, if they're fragments, hold pieces, manuscripts, scrolls, whatever they are, we can cross-reference them with each other and see, is what this copy says here the same as this copy? Are these copies the same as this copy? Because the closer those copies look together the more trusted we can say we know what the original copy said. In the Bible, of any ancient piece of literature, I want you guys to hear this, the Bible of any ancient piece of literature has the most number of copies that we can cross-reference. The number is 66,420 fragments, copies, scrolls, or manuscripts that we are able to use to cross-reference itself to find out, 
Is it accurate? That is the most. The second most piece of ancient literature only has 1,800 copies. I want you to hear that. 66,000 versus 1,800. And that is Homer's Iliad, which records the story of the Trojan War, which nobody disputes. But we have 66,000 copies of Scripture, and we don't, we, our society is like, I don't know if God's real. I don't know if Jesus is real. The evidence is pretty stark. The second test that scholars use is that question of variance. And I, that really just means like the error rate. How many mistakes do we find? And this is a really important question because believe it or not, there are mistakes that have been made in our ancient texts. Now, some of us are like, can we trust it anymore? Yes, we can. Because there are 400,000 mis mistakes. But those mistakes, the vast majority, some scholars estimate about 98%, account for spelling errors, which, come on, we all make spelling mistakes. And the second one is word order. So instead of saying Christ Jesus, someone may have wrote Jesus Christ. Or instead of spelling a word honor, H-O-N-O-R, maybe they spelled it H-O-N-O-U-R because they like to be proper. Those are the sorts of mistakes we see Scripture making, but most of them if not all of them, have nothing to do with core truth or doctrinal practices of the church. And additionally, there exist sources that are outside of Scripture, that don't subscribe to biblical truth, like the Babylonian Talmud, or there are ancient historians that go by the name of Tacitus or Josephus who wrote their own history during the first century. And what they write are things like, there was a man in Israel named Jesus. He was crucified by a guy named Pontius Pilate, and it is rumored that he came back from the dead. I don't know about you, but that sounds like corroborating evidence from a source that does not believe what Scripture would say, and yet still confesses that some of those events may be true. That is fantastic evidence for the church. That is fantastic evidence for us to say that the historical facts that the Bible has may, in fact, actually be true. But if not more important than the quantity or the error rate is the recency of a document. Jason, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Okay, what did you have six weeks ago for breakfast on Sunday? No exactly. That's the point. See, when we write something down like ancient documents, the closer you are to the day it happened, the more accurate they become. Jason can't remember what he had six weeks ago for breakfast. How does that change when you're writing down historical events, maybe 400 years ago? Are you going to remember every detail just the way it happened? Because the most recent piece of Homer's Iliad about the Trojan War was written, that we have anyway, was written 400 years after the Trojan War. We have copies of the gospel that were written 35 to 40 years by the people who saw the event take place after Jesus died. The recency of some of our biblical texts are within the lifetime of the people that experienced them. That is fantastic evidence for us to say we have a pretty good and accurate idea 
that what the scripture says is true. And beyond that, modern archaeology is continuing to find evidence that finds proof of ancient peoples and ancient places found in scripture. And if we go one step further, many of the gospel writers, the people who claimed to follow Jesus, claimed to say he was the Son of God, suffered remarkable brutality and even death for the things that they claimed. And if it was all a farce, why would they die for it? There is enough information and historical context about the events in Scripture for us to accept them as being accurate and within a good margin of confidence say, no, it has not been changed or corrupted from its origin. If the book from a historical perspective is trustworthy, then it leaves me to ask, can the same be said of its spiritual content? Is the spiritual content in Scripture just as trustworthy as the historical? Maybe it makes us wonder who wrote it or where did it come from. So if you are here this morning and you are less than enthusiastic about spiritual matters, the next few minutes are probably going to be really challenging to you because our chosen truth is this. We believe that the scriptures were inspired by God himself. Of course, there were human hands that penned out the poetry, the law, the history, the letters, all of their own volition. And we believe God revealed the truths they wrote to them. And in the entire work, we believe they are infallible and an authoritative rule for life. It's a big claim. And we reason this to be the case because if the scriptures are historically accurate, then why could not the same be true of its spiritual claim? And this is where my argument for proof is going to end because I cannot prove the divinely inspired nature of scripture. I can't. There's no way to put God in a bottle, God in a test tube, and see, say, see, here he is. Look, I'll dump it out and it writes words. I can't show that to you. If I did, I'd have really good magic tricks. And I apologize from this point on because for a lot of people who are skeptics, they like good reason. They like good thought. And from this point forward, everything we're going to share in the weeks ahead is going to seem like circular logic. The Bible says this, therefore it must be true. But you can't provide proof of divinity. No, I can't. But my prayer and my encouragement for you is this. Many of us in this room... We're not idiots. <laughs> we have made a conscious decision to trust that the nuts and bolts of this book can bear the weight. We've made a conscious decision that while it might seem insane, we trust that the scriptures are going to hold together. So I want to ask you, if you're a skeptic in this room, if you're uncertain if what I'm saying is even true, I want to ask you to make a temporary deal with me. For the next few weeks, make a choice to trust that it will at least for, I think, like eight more weeks stand the test of time, like they have for the last 2,000 years. So if you are willing to make that jump with me today and trust that even for just a temporary moment, I will trust that what the scriptures say are true, I want to invite you along with the rest of us. And before we continue that journey, I want to pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for science. 
We thank you for history. We thank you for archaeologists. And Father, we thank you for the many men and women that dedicated their lives to make very good copies of original documents so that they can be translated today into the holy scriptures that we have. We pray that as we look at it over the weeks ahead that you would continue to reveal your words to us. And Father, for those of us that are uncertain, curious, or unconvinced of what this book says, we pray that we could all find to trust that there is nothing malintended in this book. In your name, amen. All right. I guess now the fun part. Um, What do we mean when we say the Bible is the verbally inspired of God and is the revelation of God to man, the infallible authoritative rule of faith and conduct. What does that mean? That is a very fancy way to put a theological snapshot out there of a pretty simple belief. So I'm going to break it down into to bullet points and then I'm going to break it down into a one sentence phrase. In bullet points, we mean this. The Bible is the inspired word of God, meaning that the Holy Spirit shaped the words and thoughts of the men and women who wrote down the scriptures, much like we believe the Holy Spirit transforms and uses his creative nature to change our lives. That's what we mean by inspired, that the Holy Spirit, influenced by his creative nature, the words and thoughts of our writers. We believe that the Bible is infallible. That is a word meaning that we believe that the scriptures are true, reliable, and not within conflict with themselves. And the last one, the Bible is authoritative to mean that we believe that the Bible is to be used as a guide, as a a way for us to figure out how can we navigate our lives and the future of the church. That's what we mean by authoritative. We look at it as the guiding standard. So if we're going to say, to the point, what am I saying? We believe that the Bible is the truth about life from God. And that is a pretty big claim, that this book is the truth about life. Because if it was, don't you think we should like gold plate it or put it in a safety case or bulletproof it? Like, if it is the truth about life from God, how come every household in America has like six sitting on a shelf collecting dust? I don't know. Let's continue. That's what we believe. So how do we figure this to be true? Well, there are three verses and two stories we're going to look at this morning to help us understand why. There are many spots in Scripture where it talks about its inspired nature, its reliability, and its authority. We're just going to look at a few this morning. So as to understand its inspiration, that it was created in man by the thoughts of God, we're going to look at a man named Peter. Peter was one of Jesus' apostles, his closest students, and was with him from the very beginning of his ministry. After Jesus' death and his resurrection, after he died and miraculously came back to life and ascended into heaven before people, Jesus commissioned Peter to lead the church forward into the future. And nearing the end of Peter's life, he had heard that some people out there were starting to claim that the disciples or the followers of Jesus He had heard people were making claims that the things that the disciples said weren't true, that they were full of lies, that they were just making it all up. So Peter took some time, since he couldn't be there physically with them, he took some time and he penned out his thoughts to respond to them because he wanted to have a discussion. He didn't want people to just make some assumptions and carry on with life. He said, no, let's talk about this. 
So Peter wrote two letters, 1 Peter and 2 Peter as we call them today. They're in the second half of this book. And he sent them as a circulation to a bunch of churches throughout his, his world. And so Peter reminded the church, I'm going to kind of in layman's terms make this, Peter reminded the church, look guys, we didn't make this stuff up. We were there. We saw the heavens open up. We saw this light come down on Jesus. And then we heard this booming voice saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. God made the claims we make. We didn't make this stuff up. And in fact, if you look back at the, at the scriptures that you read, we weren't the first to make them. Peter said, there are other people who have made these claims about Jesus long before we have. And then Peter claimed this, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21. He said, For prophecy, or the words spoken about God, never had their origin in human will. But prophets, though they were human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter is making an argument saying, The words of God whether written down or from our mouths as we proclaim them and have experienced them to you, are true. It was his testimony. It was the life that he had experienced. He had read and he had practiced, and he said, I found them both to be true. I believe these are inspired from God, and I hope you can accept that. As an eyewitness in the early church, Peter held to that claim that, yes, these words are from God himself. And while Peter had to answer the question, is this stuff authentically divine? Paul, another church leader, had to answer the question, how do we use it? So we're going to be looking at the reliability now and the authority or the usefulness of it as a guide for our lives. Paul a famous church leader, started churches all over the ancient world. He went from community to community, raising up people to understand who Jesus was and then lead those churches forward. Throughout his life, Paul's concern was not just that people understand that the scriptures come from God, but that they would be useful, that they would continue to accept them and use them in their lives. One church that Paul started suffered a lot of violence from the local government after Paul left town. And Paul was kind of afraid, is this violence going to make them stop following the things that I have taught them? And to his great delight, Paul found out later that no, his friends had not abandoned the faith or what he had taught them. And in fact, many of them were not just enduring the brutality, but they were thriving because of the brutality. And they did this because they found what Paul had taught them to be trustworthy and true without error and useful for life. So Paul wrote to them in 1 Thessalonians 2:13. He said, "We thank you, God. We thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the true word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe." Now, how does this prove that it's trustworthy, right, or reliable? Why would Paul spend so much of his life starting churches and follow up with them to make sure that they're continuing? And why would he be so, so intent and make sure they're holding to the words in a book if he didn't believe that they were true or helpful? If Paul was a con man coming in and going, he would come in, take what he needed, and leave and nary care again of what happened. Paul believed deeply that these words were reliable and true for enduring. 
But in addition to starting churches, Paul raised up leaders. One of them was a young man named Timothy. And near the end of Paul's life, he became pretty concerned for Timothy because many of the leaders that Paul had raised up were starting to bail on the faith because it was becoming difficult, hard, and they found out Paul was in prison and didn't want to be associated with him. But Paul, not wanting Timothy, one of his dearest friends, he considered him a son in the faith, wrote to him and said, Timothy, from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures. They are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul couldn't be in the flesh for all people. So he wrote these letters to Timothy, to the Thessalonian church, to remind them that the scriptures are there to truthfully guide them through any hardship. At the beginning of the church, its earliest leaders understood that the scriptures were inspired by God and given to us to be, tr- to be our reliable guide to carry our movement forward into the future. We've covered a lot of ground this morning. I feel like we've made a pretty good case for the Bible to be considered historically accurate. And by trusting in its sincerity, we might be able to find that it's actually the inspired foundation to our faith. But there's all of this, and I can't help but ask myself, so what? What does it matter? Sure, let's say it's the inspired Word of God. Sure, let's say it's accurate. Sure, Let's say that it is an authority that teaches us how to live our lives so that we can flourish in the life that God has given us. But what does it matter? Gustave Eiffel, the man who designed the famous tower in Paris, knew something about nuts and bolts, that they're useless if we don't sink them into the place they need to be. A one-inch bolt can hold hold 40,000 pounds. Like a one-inch diameter bolt can hold 40,000 pounds. But what does it need to be able to hold it? It needs weight. Otherwise, it just sits passively, collecting dust, useless, purposeless. It is just a weight in itself, good for nothing. But if it's allowed to turn be turned into place, it starts to construct something magnificent. Do we believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Do we believe that it's reliable? Do we believe that it's the guide for our actions? Because if we can't answer yes to each of those questions, then the bolt isn't in place, and our faith and the global church is going to fall apart because our foundation isn't set. Our world has changed significantly in the last 20 years, and it is unlikely that that pace is going to change. I do a lot of reading on on young people, and there's an author named James Emery White, and he's looking at Generation Z, all of our teenagers right now, and he said they might be the last 
hear this, they might be the last identifiable generational group because the pace of change in our culture due to technology and the progressive nature of our thought is going to make the future generations indistinguishable because it's not going to be a question of who is going to be the generation tomorrow. It's going to be the question of what did culture do today that changed the world? Our world is going to continue to change. Our political system will continue to change. Racial demographics will continue to change. Income distribution between social classes will continue to change. Technology will advance. Global emergencies will happen. Ethics will evolve. And the value of human life will be valued differently. And because of all of that, our understanding of spirituality and truth will continue to change. These changes will shape our understanding of who God made us, who the Son saved us, and the Holy Spirit sustained us. It's going to change our understandings of that if we aren't careful. If we are not careful to live our lives by this, if we are not careful to sink this into its proper place, the shape of God will turn into our inspiration. The reliability of God will be determined by our reason, and his authority for our lives will be determined by our power. At the beginning of this book, there is a story. I shared this a couple weeks ago where God bent down into the dust and breathed life into it and said, I have made humanity in my image. And if we are not careful, if we do not make ourselves subject, if we do not allow us to be saturated in this book, if we do not allow the tr- to choose to allow this to be truth, we will make God in our image. And that is not the God that we worship at all. If we can't agree that this writing is of God, reliable and authoritative, then what we believe about God will be changed by our every new thought, every whim, idea, perspective, and life event that happens to us. To the man who wins the lottery, God is a fantastic provider. But to the family and parents who lost a son and dear brother, God could be a careless and thoughtless thief if we don't understand who he is. We need an inspired, reliable guide to help us navigate the ages to come, just as the church has needed an inspired, reliable guide to navigate the ages that have passed. And if we really believe that God chose to reveal himself, that the knowledge of this life and the one to come has been truthfully and accurately unveiled in this book to guide us, then it should shape everything about us who we are, who and what we give our time to, and how we understand our place in this world. So let's turn that bolt into place and let the author of creation guide us forward in unity, holding us together in a common truth. If you don't have a Bible, we will be so happy to get you one, even if you want to look at it and tear it apart and wonder, is this even real? If you have one but don't know where to start, 
I encourage you, the Gospel of John, one of the biographies, it's in the first half of the New Testament. Read it. It's an account of who Christ was. And it still, still is. And if you've been reading but need help understanding, don't do it alone. Ask me or one of our church leaders or someone you know who seems to be connected, how do I get connected to a connect group? Today was like a a fire hose of facts, dates, and research, and I know that. But I also know that if we put it all together, it suggests that God might actually be who he says he is. And if this morning, when I made the challenge for you to temporarily trust that this is actually what it claims to be, if you made that agreement to temporarily trust it and you want to go deeper, I want to encourage you after service to come forward and find one of our prayer partners. I don't even care if you say, I don't really agree with this junk, but I'm willing to give it another shot. I'm willing to give it a test. And this is where I don't know really where to end today. Because again, all of this, I kept wondering, so what? And then I had a conversation out in the lobby before coming in. There was a pastor, the person who shared this story, you can start laughing. There was a pastor named D.L. Moody who did not give an altar call at one of his, la- at, at a, at one of his services. In the time following, the Chicago fire lit and most of Chicago burned. And he said, never again will I not give someone a response, an ability to respond to what God wants for their lives. Now, what I'm about to ask is not for those who are new, not for those who are just testing this out. This is for those of us who say, yeah, I believe this. Are you in it? Are you reading it? Does it shape your life? Because if it doesn't, throw it on the shelf and what we are doing doesn't matter. We cannot be God's people if we do not know God. It doesn't matter if we hire a lead pastor because he is not God for us. He is not the one who brings revelation. Revelation has already been made. And it is time that we pick it up and we find out, I am made in the image of God. I am a new creation. I do not have to live the way I've always lived. I am no longer a slave to my flesh. I have been made in the image of God to be his holy people, to bring peace and restoration to this world. That deserves our time and our attention. And I'm sorry if you feel conflicted and yelled at this morning. That is not my heart. (laughs) My heart is that we would be his people. And his people need to be subject to his authority because he is our king. So this morning, I just want to close and open this place in the front. A few weeks ago, months ago, I said we used to call this place an altar where we sacrifice our lives to the Lord and say, it is not my will but yours be done. Some of us need to start making God in his image, not our own. So, Randall, if you want to come up and play for us, we are going to just close service this morning as an opportunity to respond and say, Lord, 
I need to take this seriously. My foundation, the bolt is not properly in place and I need to put it where it needs to be. As Randall plays, Pastor Randall plays, and you feel led to say, God, I need to make things right with you this morning, please come forward. In a few minutes, I will close out service, but for the next five, let this be a time for you to respond and say, God, do what you need to in my life so that I can be made in your image.